2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes these words. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. When men get together, one of their favorite pastimes is comparing each other's scars. At the Calvary Chapel Men's Retreat, if you've got a gnarly scar to show off, you become an instant celebrity. Nasty-looking scars are definitely cool. Around the world, over the centuries, physical scars have served as badges of honor and of manliness. Did you know that in ancient Rome, when a man was running for the Senate, it was not uncommon on the campaign stump for him to actually pull back his tunic and show off his scars? His scars were a big part of the man's credentials. Smooth skin was considered a public embarrassment. A combat wound or scar incurred on a risky journey or in dangerous work earned respect and gained for the man a good deal of votes. You remember the Greek classics that you read in high school, at least you were supposed to? The Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer's classics. If you were as studious as me, you probably read the Cliff Notes, if at all. But the story is told of Odysseus, the legendary king of Ithaca. As a boy, he had gone hunting with some older men. They were on a mountain slope when suddenly a boar emerged from a thicket. A bold Odysseus, he was the first to throw his spear at the boar, but he missed. And the animal gored him just above his knee. Undeterred, Odysseus, he retrieved his spear and he ran it through the boar. Afterwards, his uncles, they prepared the carcass, and they bandaged up the young man's wounds. His first official hunt revealed the courage that would later make him a great general. Odysseus returned home with a big scar on his leg and bigger stories to tell. Now, fast forward many years. Odysseus has been away fighting battles. Upon his return home, he's kept his identity hidden. He pretends to be a beggar 
while he tries to sort out if his wife Penelope has been faithful to him and which of his subordinates have tried to usurp his throne. At one point, Penelope, still not knowing his true identity, asked her lifelong servant to wash the beggar's feet. Well, as he puts his feet in the basin, her maid notices the hunting scar above his knee. And she reacts instantly, my child, I am sure you must be Odysseus himself. That scar that originally proved the young Odysseus' courage was also the defining mark that revealed his true identity. And this was the case with Paul's scars. You remember, there were Corinthians who doubted Paul. They questioned the legitimacy of his apostleship. How could a man who suffered like Paul be a true servant of God? Oh, surely God takes care of his servants than the treatment that Paul has received. If he were a man of God, he would prosper. He would enjoy smooth sailing. He would live trouble-free. But Paul says just the opposite was true. Paul was confronted over and over by harsh trials that had proven his commitment and his courage. And now those scars were the very evidence of God's calling on his life. All the suffering that Paul endured for the gospel's sake, his scars, if you will, were what identified him now as a servant of Christ. You see, the proof of his ministry was his scars. Well, chapter 6 begins. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, in chapter 5, Paul talked about our ministry. And if you want a meaningful ministry, look no further. For we have all been given the ministry of reconciliation. Did you know it's your job, it's my job, to put the hand of men into the hand of God? We're exchange agents. We're swapping life for death, light for darkness, pardon for guilt, purity for perversion, salvation for sinfulness. To sum it up, we're swapping reconciliation with God for alienation from God. We're working together with God in his efforts to reconcile this lost world. Recall the poignant way that Paul put it in chapter 5. God was in Christ, dying to save the world. Now God is in us, pleading for the world to be saved. And don't you love what Paul calls us here in chapter 6, verse 1? He says, we are workers together with him. I hope you know that whenever you serve the Lord... No one ever just works for Jesus. We always work with Jesus. You know, a big part of serving the Lord is not just what we accomplish, but it's the opportunity to do it with Jesus. As we serve, He leads. As we serve, He empowers. As we serve, He enlightens us. We learn His ways. We get to know the Lord as we serve Him. And here in verse 1, Jesus pleads with and through Paul to the Corinthians not to receive the grace of God in vain. He tells them, don't receive God's grace without growing in that grace. We need to take advantage of the favor and the blessings and the access to God that God's grace provides. You know, it's always striking to me that we can waste 
grace. We can. That spiritually famished folks like you and me can leave a delicious, healthy meal right there on the table without even taking a nibble. Imagine losing your credit card while you've still got money in the bank or your debit card. Imagine having presents in heaven with your name on them that sit unopened. Imagine fighting spiritual battles with bullets still left in your gun. Don't waste grace. God's gifts are free. His truth and his love and his wisdom and his peace and his joy. But we have to have the faith to draw them out. Too many of us are standing on the dock while seats remain empty on the boat. Reminds me of the Titanic. When the ocean liner that couldn't be sunk finally sunk, It had multiple lifeboats on board that were certified to hold a total of 1,178 people. Guess what? Only 711 passengers and crew survived. In fact, lifeboat number one had room for 40 people, but when the rescuers arrived, there were only 12 survivors on board. Tragically, 40% of the lifeboats were empty. Nearly half of the rescue spaces went to waste. And this is not what Paul wants to see happen with God's kindness and with God's grace. All of God's favor, all of his blessing was paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. To waste his grace means that the blood of Jesus was spilt in vain. God forbid. You know, it's one thing to be beneficiaries of God's grace. But don't just let it sit in the bank. We need to make daily withdrawals. To help us forgive, to get strength for temptation, to help us endure the trials, to enjoy God's peace, we need to tap in to His grace. Verse 2 quotes Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8, when it says, For He says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Not next month, not even the next moment, but now is the time to receive God's grace and to be reconciled to Him. Hey, the peak season for salvation is right now. Keep in mind that salvation is a seasonal business. Like beach chairs. Like Christmas ornaments. There are only certain times of the year when those products get sold, when they're available. And the same is true for salvation. Hey, in the millions and zillions of years on God's cosmic calendar, the only time that God will ever zero in on reconciling a lost humanity is right now. Now is the day of salvation. When time ends and eternity begins, you'll be unable to obtain salvation. Today, though, the shelves are stocked. Business is brisk. In fact, God even needs our help behind the counter. That's why he's recruited us. I used to work in this grocery store, and there was a rule we had in the grocery store. If customers were stacking up at the registers, even if you were on break, even if you were at lunch, you got back to work immediately. We never made the customers wait. And this is why today God is calling all his people, you and me, to come to the front of the store. We're ministers of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. 
We got customers checking out. They need to get the gospel, and we need to give it to them. And when I talk about the day when time ends and eternity begins, I hope you understand, I'm not just speaking of a day yet future, at the end of the age, when Jesus returns. For time ends and eternity begins every day on this planet for 151,600 people. That's the number of people who die every day on planet Earth. Imagine this, every hour, a total of 6,316 people will die and meet their maker. That means 9,000 people will die during this Sunday morning service. Hey, right this second, folks all over the globe are checking out, and they desperately need Jesus. And you, are, you and I are the ones who are supposed to give him to them. You hear a lot of talk these days about near-death experiences. Folks see bright lights and walk down long tunnels. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but that's not what you're going to see when you die. It's not. Near-death experiences aren't really dead experiences. Author C.S. Lewis, he describes what you'll see. The first moment you die, there will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it or not. Now, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It won't last forever. We must take it or leave it. This is why now is the day of salvation. Hey, everyone to the checkouts. We got customers. And in verse 3, Paul explains that this is why he takes his ministry so deadly seriously. He says, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. Paul doesn't want anything to discredit this glorious gospel. People need it, desperately so, and now is the time to give it to them. Let's not do anything that would discredit it. The message Paul preached was a lifeline to men and women who were drowning. He wanted them to be assured of its trustworthiness. That it would hold them. Sadly, though, some ministries today do more harm than good. They're too pushy. Maybe they're too slick. Maybe they're too self-promoting. They come across hypocritical. They try to pressure and manipulate people. They turn folks off. The gospel of Jesus will reveal our sin. It will confront us and command us to repent. Hey, it offends by its very nature. That's why we should never offend anyone unnecessarily. Yesterday, I was coming home on the airplane, and I was talking to a lady who was sitting next to me. I asked her if she was a Christian. She smiled, and she said she was. Then I asked her what church she attended. She said she didn't. She said she no longer attended church. She'd been turned off by some unkind Christians. We agreed The number one reason people become a Christian is another Christian. And the number one reason they don't is another Christian. Guard hard against offending anyone, unless it's with the gospel. Genuine kindness is what folks need to see. This is what Paul wanted to practice in his ministry. And this is why Paul was so vigilant about 
him serving the Lord. He says, but in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God. Rather than offend, Paul commends himself as a minister. He wanted to hold himself up as an example of faithful service to God. And this should be the goal of every church, every pastor. Not to promote oneself or to brag about our achievements, but to do ministry with the kind of integrity that stands up under the world's scrutiny. A church that doesn't pay its bills, a church that mistreats people, it harms the cause of Christ. Here at Calvary Chapel, we want to conduct both the business side and the ministry side of what we do in a way that witnesses to outsiders and encourages the saints. This is how Paul conducted his ministry. But this is easier said than done. For when you apply the stresses of ministry and attacks from the enemy and the uncertainties of life and the opposition we get from this world, then suddenly being an example of godly ministry becomes a real challenge. The typical church member doesn't realize the sacrifices and difficulties and obstacles that a pastor faces. Pastor James served as an elder here at Calvary Chapel for nearly a decade before he came on staff as the assistant pastor. Every Monday, James and I ate lunch together. I would spill the beans of the ministry, what all was going on in my heart. Hey, if anybody should have known what was going on, it would have been Pastor James. But I'll never forget after a few months after he'd come on staff, he confessed to me. He said, Sandy, he says, man, I had no idea what you go through. I had no idea. I thought I did, but I didn't. And the Corinthians didn't realize all that Pastor Paul had endured. You know, it's been said, a ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. And in the remaining verses of our text, Paul itemizes the price that he had paid in ministry. He speaks of some intense trials. He talks about his deepest priorities, even his most puzzling challenges. In verses 4 through 10, Paul lists 28 issues that impacted his ministry. He mentions the pressures in his ministry. He talks about the priorities by which he carried out his ministry. And then he discusses some paradoxes that he discovered as he did ministry. Ten pressures, eleven priorities, seven paradoxes. And with the time I have left, I want to talk about the price Paul paid for the gospel. For the time may come when you and I are called on to make some of the same expenditures. Well, Paul begins in verse 4 with pressures in ministry. One of the early church fathers referred to these pressures that Paul lists as, and I quote, the blizzard of troubles. Paul starts with a quartet of difficulties, followed by a trio of hostilities, followed by Paul's own responsibilities, three of them. Here are these difficulties. Verse 4. In much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses. Now he starts out with a huge understatement. Ministry requires patience? We all should know that. Actually, Paul says it best. Much patience. According to the parable of the sower, the seed fell on four kinds of soil. Before we built this building, I thought all dirt was created equal. But not according to Gwinnett County. 
It comes in different varieties, different rates of percolation, all kinds of things. And Jesus said of these four soil types that he mentions, that only one receives the seed. Of course, the seed is God's word, the soil is human hearts, and the sower is you and I. When we share or live out our faith, we're sowing seed. But understand, this takes time. And only one out of four people is ready to receive. That's why we need patience for folks to come around. And we need persistence in our own sharing. Just be glad that before you got saved, the people in your life didn't give up on you. They had patience. This is why Paul said to the Galatians, let us not grow weary while doing good. He says in Hebrews chapter 6, through faith and patience, we inherit God's promises. It's not just faith we need, not just patience we need. We need the combination of both faith and patience. This is what receives from God. Well, notice Paul also mentions tribulations. The Greek word is thalipsis, which means to compress or to restrict. At times in ministry, man, the collar gets tight. <laughs> Stakes get high. Christian ministry comes in pressure-packed situations. Somebody has a question about God that they ask you. A depressed person is looking for answers. A struggling couple come to you hoping for a word that will save their marriage. This is high stakes. This is pressure packed. A pastor is like a field goal kicker. And it's always the fourth quarter. And the score is always tied. And there are always three seconds on the clock. And it's always the most strategic game of the year. There's just some real tension involved in ministry. And yet this is what Paul endured year after year for the gospel's sake. As well as in needs. And wow, that's such an open-ended phrase. Paul says, needs, plural. You get the impression Paul considered himself a really needy person in multiple ways. Physically and spiritually and economically and socially and medically. He needed money for support. He needed healing for his eyes. He needed a job in the next town he would visit. He needed friends to travel with him and help him out. Not to mention he needed the spiritual insight to guide the church. And he needed the physical stamina to endure the trials. Here is the golden rule in ministry. We are always trying to meet unlimited needs with limited resources. Always. And this is what keeps us trusting in God and not in ourselves. We're always throwing our meagerness at the problem and trusting God to do something mighty. It's our neediness that keeps us on our knees, no less. And then there's distresses. Paul ministered in distresses. The Greek term is a compound word that when translated literally means close spaces. The word could be translated close calls or near misses. And here's an apt description of ministry. It's a life of close calls and near misses. Victory or defeat, success or failure often gets decided by a razor-thin margin. You believe, and God comes through just in the nick of time. You're tempted, but suddenly in the midst of it, He provides a way of escape. 
You're going under when God delivers you out of the blue. Again, God always ups the ante in ministry, so we'll never drift far from our dependence on Him. But then he lists three more pressures or hostilities. He says in stripes. In chapter 11, he'll tell us that he was beaten five times with 39 lashes. On three more occasions, he was flogged with Roman rods. Paul was like a Timex watch. He took a licking, but kept on ticking. Imprisonments, he said. Notice the plural there. We know about Philippi where Paul and Silas were beaten, locked up, and ended up praising God at midnight. Yet obviously Paul spent more jail time in other places. Otherwise than we find in the book of Acts. Incarceration, jail cells were no strangers to Paul. And in tumults. Paul was a source of riots in Lystra, in Thessalonica, in Ephesus, even in Corinth. You remember in the city of Thessalonica, his enemies referred to him as the man who turned the world upside down. Paul was a flashpoint. He was a firebrand. Imagine a pastor walking in here applying for an opening on our staff. He wanted to be a pastor here at Calvary Chapel. He says he's a man of God. And what if I ask him about his qualifications? And the first thing he did was he lifted up his shirt and he showed us the crisscross scars across his back. And then he brings up his extensive prison record. And then he says that he's often the flashpoint for riots. I mean, does this guy really think he's pastor material? Hey, we want a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. But that might be more of an insight into our watered-down criteria than a reflection on this pastor. Remember, like Paul, it was said of Jesus, he comforted the disturbed, but he disturbed the comfortable. I believe any pastor who preaches God's word may not cause riots, but he'll definitely step on some toes from time to time. He will be a firebrand, and hopefully we'll be thankful when he does. And then Paul mentions a trio of self-assumed responsibilities that, again, added pressure to his ministry. He writes, in labors, Paul worked long and hard. This man was a workhorse in spreading the gospel. Paul was a bivocational pastor in most of the cities he visited. He made tents by day and preached by night. In sleeplessness, had many sleepless nights, Paul endured. You know, there are only 24 hours in a day. And some days, a pastor gets his extra hours by forfeiting some slumber. A pastor's life is full of late nights. If you want to work 40 hours a week and leave your work at the office, please don't be a pastor. And in fastings, denying the flesh to focus in on God is a discipline Paul and all pastors need to cultivate. And then in verse 6, Paul shifts gears. A genuine Christian ministry will also have 11 priorities. And Paul begins, he brought the gospel, he ministered by purity. Pure motives, a pure heart, pure love, pure thoughts. These are all marks of a pure ministry. He also prioritized knowledge. He says, by knowledge, a genuine Christian ministry values the knowledge of God especially. 
Hey, if you don't know God, if you don't walk in a relationship with God, you've got no business representing him. Jeremiah 9 tells us, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. The person who knows God and fears God, that person has nothing else to fear. He says he ministered by long-suffering. As we've said, Christian ministry requires patience and endurance. It takes stick-to-itness. The Greek word here is makrothymos. Not just endurance, but macro-endurance. Great endurance. Man, when you think you're at the end of your rope, here's what you can pray for. Great endurance. God will help you hold on just a little longer. And then he ministered by kindness. You know, it's been said, people won't care what you know until they know that you care. A true witness for Jesus offers more than words. He holds out a helping hand. He or she advances the gospel by kindness and by the Holy Spirit. Everything done for God, everything done for God of deep and permanent value comes by the Holy Spirit. And then he says he ministers by sincere love. Not that sappy, syrupy, phony kind of love. But sincere love. Love that cares. Love that doesn't quit. A true Christian leader never quits on people. He ministers by the word of truth. Here is the firepower of Christian ministry. It's the scriptures. Your Bible is no ordinary book. It's living and it's powerful. It works miracles and changes lives. It cuts to the heart. It's food for the soul. As Jeremiah says, it is the hammer that has broken many anvils. And we're to minister by the power of God. Again, the Holy Spirit. You know, the term power here is the Greek word dunamis, from which we get our words dynamic or dynamite. This is what the Spirit of God brings to a Christian's ministry. Against all odds power. Miracle working power. True Christian ministry is evidenced by supernatural power. And then by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Righteousness. Every Christian ministry needs righteousness. What is that? Well, on the heaven side, it's a right standing with God. Then on the inner side... It's a twisted life that's been made right, and we need both. A right standing with God and righteousness of heart. This is what keeps the devil from condemning us and from tempting us, or at least succeeding. And then again, Paul is listing the marks of a faithful ministry. He continues, he says, by honor and dishonor. And you know, a pastor gets his share of both. It's odd how people treat me after I tell them I'm a pastor. Sometimes I like to keep it a secret. Then I spring it on them. Just the right moment. Some folks show me instant respect. Other folks, they show an obvious disdain. A minister will be identified by honor and dishonor. And by evil report and good report. Hey, guys, up against a pluralistic, anti-Christian, politically correct culture like our own, 
Have you noticed the Bible is becoming increasingly confrontational? Have you noticed this? It's impossible for me to stand up here week after week and teach the Bible truthfully without ruffling some feathers. Hey, not a week goes by these days that I don't make somebody mad. Every message I preach ends in a split decision. Some folks call it a good report. Others an evil report. It's just the truth. Remember this discussion in chapter 6. It isn't Paul tooting his own horn. The Corinthians have questioned him. They've doubted the legitimacy of God's calling on his life. He just wants his friends in Corinth to know what he, that what he's endured is for their sake as well as for Jesus' sake. Like all of us, Paul wants to be respected and appreciated. And I have to tell you, I know how Paul feels. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. The toughest times in ministry are when people criticize what they see while you're making sacrifices they can't see. It's hard on a pastor when people don't trust his heart or appreciate his efforts or realize there's more to the story than what they know. Why don't they give the pastor the benefit of the doubt? This blind kind of criticism, it isn't right, it isn't fair. (laughs) But it's the pastor's plight. And I would suppose Calvary's cross wasn't very fair either. That's what I keep reminding myself of. Early in our ministry, I was getting criticized by a group of people in our church. And I went over to see my dad for advice, which is always kind of a risky thing to do. I sat down at the kitchen table and spilled my guts out. Dad, you'd think after 13 years of faithfulness, I wouldn't have to keep proving myself to these people. And I'll never forget my dad's reply. He said, Sandy, in this world, you have got to prove yourself to people every single day. And it's true. Hey, Paul didn't have to prove himself to Jesus. He had unconditional love, unconditional acceptance. He was... Righteous in Christ. But he did have to prove himself to the Corinthians. That's what he's doing here. He's proving his sincerity to this church. He wants them to trust him as their pastor. And then Paul lists seven paradoxes he's experienced in his ministry. Which I'm sure have been felt by all pastors. He says, as deceivers and yet not true. You know, not only does a pastor teach, he also has been called by God to lead. Those who like his direction believe he's sincere in seeking God. Those who don't like where he's headed conclude he's a phony. Must be. I don't agree with him. But every decision he makes is met with controversy of some sort. Can't make everybody happy. He's treated as a deceiver and yet true. As unknown and yet well known. How can this be? Well, everybody knows I'm Pastor Sandy. But you know what they forget? They forget I'm Kathy's honey. And they forget I'm now dad to seven kids. And that I'm G-daddy to seven more grandkids. And I'm even a pastor to pastors. Everybody knows I'm Pastor Sandy, but few people remember that I got a life outside of what I do for them. I'm well known, yet I'm unknown. Here's another paradox. As dying, and behold, we live. We understand this. 
In the Christian life, we are called on to die to our pride, our selfishness, our self-interest, while at the same time, God's life and joy and love and power swell up inside us. We become fully alive in Him. We die and lay down our lives in so many ways, yet God fills us with life like we've never lived before. As chastened and, not, and, and yet not killed. Did you know that God disciplines pastors? He teaches us hard lessons. Pastors go through tough times. Did you know that God spanks pastors? You don't believe me. I'm sh- no, no. I'm just kidding. You know, as the old saying goes, what doesn't kill him makes him stronger. This is another of a pastor's paradoxes. And then verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Every pastor realizes that ministry is like a roller coaster, man. It's full of dips and dives. It's full of highs and lows. One week, folks are getting saved. There's a great offering. All is well. The next week, the crowd is down. People are complaining. What in the world happened in seven days? A pastor can get his heart broken by a person he trusted. Then literally seconds later, have the joy of leading a person to Christ. This is why you just got to persist. Here's another paradox. As poor, yet making many rich. For years, Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain has done a lot with a little. Compared to other churches our size, at times we've been poor. And yet we've made folks spiritually rich week after week by passing out biblical treasures. And then the last paradox. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. A bank account can be near zero, but spiritual deposits can always be made in heaven by serving the Lord. What an irony it is. A believer in Jesus can be broke and blessed at the same time. Have you come to realize this? It's true. This was the paradox for most of Adoniram Judson's life. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. Judson pioneered Christian missions in the country of Burma in the early 1800s. But his efforts were not immediately appreciated. For the first seven years in Burma, he failed to see a single person converted to Christianity. He was eventually thrown into prison. And talk about having nothing... The small cell that Judson occupied had one tiny window right there at ground level. Every day his wife, Anne would bring him food to eat. But she had to hand to him through the bars. One day, Anne told Adoniram that she had received a letter from their English supporters. The Christians back home wanted to know what the Judsons needed. You can imagine the list they could have sent. What all that list would have included. Their situation was desperate, and they had so many needs. But without hesitation, Adoniram Judson replied, Tell them to send a communion set. We're going to need it someday. I love that. Neither prison nor seven years without a convert nor countless setbacks dampened this man's faith. He had nothing, yet lived as possessing all things. During his time in prison, He was kept in leg irons and in handcuffs, which scarred his wrists and his ankles. 
Upon his release, Judson asked the king to grant him permission to preach Jesus to the Burmese people. The king replied, My people are not fools enough to listen to what a missionary might say, but I fear they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your religion. Eventually, it was his scars and the gospel he preached that won over the Burmese. Today, over half a million Christians trace their salvation back to the scars and faith of Adoniram Judson. You see, the proof of his ministry was in his scars. And this is what Paul is saying to us in our text. His critics were silenced in the pressures that he faced, by the priorities that he kept, and as the paradoxes unfolded. And this provides instruction for us, how we should conduct our ministries, how we should judge other ministries, even how we should weigh pastors. Looking for the outward physical signs of success, that can be deceptive. You need to peer deeper. Often the proof of a man's ministry is in his scar.